0: Hey, this week we've got a a new type of uh, episode for Tanzu Talk. Uh, My team has been using uh, Twitch. If you go to twitch.tv slash VMware Tanzu, you can see the original recording uh, that we did here, kind of live and unedited, and uh, all sorts of other things we're doing. But uh, I've edited this one down a little bit to be more audio compatible, and just because it's nice to edit my inane chatter down. Uh, so hopefully uh, you'll enjoy it. But if you want to see the visuals, I'll um put a link to the original video in the show notes, which is at, uh, again, twitch.tv slash VMware Tanzu. And you can also see the show notes at tanzu.vmware.com slash podcast. Also, I would be uh remiss if I didn't note, as you can see here, that we've got our conference Spring One platform coming up on September 2nd and 3rd of 2020. It's free for everyone. It's online. I've uh, helped put together some of the the talks, I should say. I've helped select some of the talks for the uh the agile uh leadership track, which is going to be great. You know, I'm always trying to make sure that we have uh a lot of good case studies and uh sort of like tactical things uh, for for people to uh, kind of learn from. So you should really come check that out, uh, September 2nd and 3rd. If you go to spring1.io, you can register for it. And again, uh, it's all free and online. uh, So hopefully it's something you enjoy. So with that, enjoy learning how uh, we help people go through the big, important task of modernizing their portfolio. And uh, this is kind of part one of just an example of how you walk through that strategy putting it together and thinking about what to do. Why don't you introduce yourself, guest?
1: My name is Rohit Um I have been in this app modernization space for a long time. Uh, I work for VMware Pivotal Labs, and my primary role is to help customers migrate applications to the cloud.
0: You have been on many editions of Tanzu Talk over and over again. I was just listening to one... Uh, uh, I think four. I was just listening to one and you're, you had a great overview with someone from Travelers, uh, mm-hmm. essentially about, uh, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but how they moved over from, uh, the mainframe, uh, essentially and kind of oh. systematically went through. And I think, I think the application y'all were talking about was, um, uh, like an insurance approval one. Like, or no, yeah. someone trying to get a price for insurance. Correct.
1: Correct, a rating application. Yeah, I mean, Travelers is great to work with, Right, they've been a long-term customer of ours. So kind of they work and get our processes. Um, mainframe is always painful, right? And you have to kind of eat that elephant one step at a time. And uh, so we they have, there was a rating for commercial insurance, I think, a rating application that used to run on the mainframe. We kind of ran our processes uh, primarily VMware Labs processes of domain-driven design and Swift to uh, to basic to pull out, start strangling out pieces of that mainframe application and rewrite it on .NET code on distributed and running it on Cloud Foundry uh, or Pivotal application, Tanzu application service. Um, that project we kick started it. Um, and then we came back and kind of helped them with a, a big push. I, I believe most of it is in production now, and they have like actually sub- been successful on, on getting off the
0: mainframe, which is kind of a big deal. That was last year, right? That, that y'all were talking with them?
1: Yeah. We spoke about it publicly last year, but the project was started a couple of years back. Um, so, it takes a while to talk externally about this things, so we had to get up yeah. the world, and then. Uh, but yeah, the webinar was happened last year, but the work was kind of ongoing last couple of years.
0: And and so I was asking that, so I I uh, I wanted to have you on because I was thinking like a uh, a visual medium is perfect for a lot of the stuff I've seen you kind of go through with your uh, with your pencil there, and uh, mm-hmm. kind of going going through how people. I mean, it's a multi stage thing. Perhaps you can start with the first or wherever you want to jump in. But I think the process that uh, uh, you all go through to kind of say, like, here's your gigantic portfolio of existing yeah. software or legacy applications or heritage or whatever, whatever people want to call it. <laughs> and and you all have a good, uh, a good process of figuring out, never minding actually doing the work, which is great, but actually yeah. figuring out what projects you should work on, like what to actually do. Which which will be fun. But before we get to that, like as I was listening to the Travelers thing, I was reminded of a conversation I've had with a couple of people, because I think the person you were talking to, there was some there was some like, like motivation they were responding to or no, they were talking about how it's really good to like, you know, not let yourself get uh, but not get stuck being happy with things being okay. And all of a sudden you have to like handle a bad situation, (laughs) right? Like that's, that's the worst time to, uh, fix legacy software. And it was reminding me of something people I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, nowadays with the the COVID and everything. And, uh, you know, I, I was early on, you know, working in marketing, people are always like, what's the COVID angle on this. We got to get the eyeballs. And so they, they want me to, uh, talk about that kind of stuff, but it always seemed like a bunch of, um, uh, overly opportunistic, (laughs) but in, in, hearing people, uh, like talk about what their organization is doing near this, I've realized for some industries, it is this crisis moment that's required them to like do things differently, really rapidly, right? Like, especially with stores and, uh, banks and things like that. And some of the commentary I've heard is really interesting where because there's such a, um, I don't know, not time dependent because there's such a deadline, like a lot of the normal slow ways of doing things, they are given permission not to do them. <laughs> and, and, mm-hmm. you know, I was wondering, like, like that seems like the opposite of what you usually are doing when you're doing application modernization, <laughs> right? Like, like it's, it's really right. hard to go in and be like, Hey, we're going to modernize this stuff. And it's kind of sort of going to result in it looking like we did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I was I was wondering, like, are, are you, whether currently or whatever, do you ever get in a situation where it is kind of like a crisis that you modernize something? And like, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, see, like, now in COVID times, one of two things happen. Either customers want to really, like, start modernizing because they have a critical pain point. Like, for instance, in retail, uh, we have seen that volumes have gone up 200%. So if if an existing retailer was looking at modernization they are basically pouring rocket fuel on that and like just like just get it started yesterday right mm. so there are two classes of en- engagements one is customers want to get started now or yesterday and then where the where it has had a long term chilling impact like uh, travel or airlines there the pipeline has almost completely stopped i mean they are basically only in like survival mode right now they don't yeah. have any money to spend on modernization so either you are pouring rocket fuel on it or you are icing it like these are the two things that are happening right usually custo- like customers and enterprises are middle of the road but like covid has either dramatically accelerated or dramatically decelerated like your modernization mm. phase is how like i have seen it uh, in the world yeah
0: that's interesting it's like there's no middle ground just the uh, just the two a, a classic uh, convex situation if i remember. no wait Convex goes up and concave goes down, if I remember. I I forget. I was never good at geometry. (laughs) (laughs) I was bad at it. (laughs) So, so as I said, uh, like what, so, so, so you, you all go in your team and, and you're like, all right, we're, we're in a, we're in a mostly large organization, unless it's a small organization that for some, one of these exceptions. And, uh, they're basically like, all right, let's, uh, let's modernize. And you go in, you know, you've had that awkward thing that we all do uh, working in an external company where you showed up 30, 45 minutes early and you hung out in the lobby until the person (laughs) who knows them shows up and you got to go give your driver's license or your passport and everything. And they, did you bring a car? And then uh, you got to wait and you go in and you like get some coffee. And it's always from these little like, uh, like little can't cups that, that have been around, whatever. So then you finally, you're all set up. You're like you got uh, you got the uh, you got the Microsoft Teams to work so the remote people can view it. You had to switch out the HDMI to USB C dongle several times, <laughs> and you're finally ready to start. What uh what are we going to launch into? And and feel free to jump around to whatever part of the process you uh, you're most interested in. But like walk us through what what it feels like to do some some modernization.
1: So uh, I'll just take it slow. So what customer has is like they call us in right. Um, and let's start with like they they have generally a problem statement or like a problem that they want to uh, that they want us to solve. So in this case, let's say they they want us to like modernize my portfolio, right? So this is there is usually when we get caught for app modernization, it is some flavor uh, of problems like this. Now from here, you kind of take two paths into the. Uh, there are like essentially two pathways that this breaks down under, right? So either they want to move a portfolio of apps to the cloud, right? So what is the best way to move a portfolio of apps in a line of business or a particular, like a, a particular stream of business, right? Uh, to the cloud, right? So this is portfolio of apps to the cloud. Or the second way is like help me to What's the best way to modernize this legacy, like critical app, like my crown jewel, the one that generates a billion dollars of revenue every year, which is this massive monolithic application. So there's a whole bunch of small, medium, and large apps, right? And then there is, uh, so I'm going to put star here, and then there are these Excel, double Excel, triple Excel apps. That are massively monolithic and generate tons of revenue. So that's kind of the problem space that we see, uh, Michael, when we uh, when we show up at a customer site.
0: And you know, I mean, tell me if you encounter this, uh, or if it's just an infrequent thing that I come up against every now and then. But <clears throat> I remember it. there's there's often a well. I'll cut to the chase. It's often like the mobile apps are done very well and work out nicely <laughs> versus versus the other apps. And I think I think maybe a lot of that has to do with the uh we don't say client server anymore, but the client server nature of mobile apps where the mobile app can just sort of exist all on its own and it has to work with back-end services, but you know, they can kind of do things all on their own. And I remember one organization I was talking with a long time ago, I was pointing out that I'd used that uh that company's mobile app and it was really nice. And they had been for an hour or so talking about all the problems that they have. And I was saying, well, why don't you just do what that mobile app team does? Because that's really nice. And they were like, Oh, no, 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 no. That's the mobile app team. They follow completely different rules. There's there's no way we could actually do that. And it seems like it seems like the small and the medium, you know, sort of apps, they're almost kind of like this island of of pleasure over there where uh, you know, people can do things in a nice way. But for whatever reason, that change hasn't uh, percolated down into the uh, the XXXL apps. <laughs> so to yeah, speak.
1: the the island of pleasure. I like that. Um, so like you are right, and I missed a critical part. Sometimes they call us to to know we want to build a new digital experience. We want to build a new like we want to build an app in this new area of business. Help us like drive. Help us figure out the product market fit. Help us do. Like the lean and the UCD processes, so they, they also VMware Pivotal Labs has a very strong like a product development uh, arm as well. So that's another thing that they call us is I don't know exactly what I need to build. I have uh, my users have this problem. I want you to run a site of hypotheses, do XP lean UCD to figure out what to build and help me build it. So this is all greenfield though. So this is like net new. Of course, it does interact with old. But, uh, and then there's a set of existing apps that live, right? And people only like to call that brown field. Uh, Usually these terms are not so popular anymore, but like it helps, this is green, and then these are brown, basically. So these are like the three flavors of things that customers, uh, enterprises need help with. So we, we kind of categorize this as like the ask, right? So next step is like the plan and the prioritize phase of the work, right? So let's get to plan and prioritize. So in plan and prioritize, right, the first thing you do is like you assess the so the as you assess the portfolio. You assess the portfolio for cloud native readiness. So you want to go to the cloud, right? Um, like what how Messed up is your application right um is is critical to know in that case, and there is a set of tools that we bring to bear that tell us how that tell us the degree of cloud nativeness to the application. So I'll give you an example um, you know that cloud native can be defined by the twelve factors or fifteen factors when you have an application that is running on vMs, you need to know what do I need to do to take it to Kubernetes or to run it, to to put it in containers? Do I need to just, uh, do I need to make sure that my application just restarts? Do I need to inject external configuration? Do I need to? So there are these various factors. And as an organization, you need to understand where, like what is the degree of technical change you need to do to migrate this application to the cloud, right? To Kubernetes or to cloud foundation.
0: I, I like I like the way you put that. I was almost—I mean—you have it more of a uh, in a gradient. I was almost going to uh, summarize by saying that you um you assess the technical feasibility of of moving the the workloads or the apps to uh, to new the, to the new platform. But then the way you're phrasing it made me realize it's more of the more helpful way of saying um <laughs> what is the technical suffering it would require, <laughs> so so that we can you know we can judge like. Not so much that it's 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 um, yes or no, but that it's really like how much effort would be would you have to put in to uh, move this over?
1: Correct effort, like feasibility. And the thing is, you you have to realize that it's it's like a a subway train with fifteen stops on the way, right? Um, so this is like my first stop, and this is my fifteenth stop. Now, you could just choose it to stay on the first stop. Like What I'm going to do, like one-factor app, my application just needs to be able to restart correctly. If it does that, then I can live in Kubernetes. It will not be optimal. Maybe it won't auto-scale. Like As long as I can restart reliably, Kubernetes can manage my application. But then the 15th stop on the subway is, hey, my application is API first. It has externalized configuration. It is completely stateless right like mm. it has all the all the patterns encoded for cloud native so you don't, you have to not think about it as a binary outcome but rather as if if I want to be on subway stop number four this is the amount of effort I need to put it through. so don't think of it as binary but like as multi, as a journey of where you want to stop for each app and the effort is dictated by that so so that's that goes into feasibility right now when we do so there is Another, this is this, the second lane, which is the the digital, build a new app digital experience. In this, today, you have to kind of figure out what the product, like what the product is. You have to determine what the product market fit is going to be. And then you have to do like, you have to run XP techniques, you have to do lean and you have to do like, you, you have to do user centered design to figure out like what to build right yeah um so here a different set of practices kind of come to bear right um more because there is a lot of uncertainty here right so you have to you are in like the discovery phase you do research you do interviews you do fun joint analysis cohort analysis to figure out what the hell that like, are we building uh, to satisfy our customers so this is where like the our traditional labs like Pivotal like got started. We used to help like Twitter and Google and stuff like that. So this uh, is we have strength in this area, and then we and this this leads to then greenfield, uh, greenfield development, right? So does the, the, this kind of swim lane make sense?
0: And yeah, and and so in that area, you're not so much modernizing things. That's you know new apps and new new things that that you're developing. Which I think to your point is sort of what most people think software development is all the time, <laughs> right? That, that, yeah. that you're sort of like, you just, you just imagine you whiteboard out, uh, some wireframes or, you know, draw something yeah, out and exactly. someone, someone writes yeah. this stuff. And then you have the, the thrilling adventure of, you know, mapping it to, uh, to either what people want to buy or how to run your business or, you know, in the, um, in the case of government stuff, like to, Satisfying whatever mission you have, like to to citizens or whatnot. But it seems uh, it seems very creative instead of tedious. <laughs> yeah,
1: but also the the but the dirty secret here is even for new product development, you almost always have to interface with backend systems. Yeah, right. Like there's no escaping that in the, in any well, unless you are a true startup or you're just creating a new bank. Like you will always have Backend systems that you are interfacing with so even in new product development at times not at times like 70 80 percent of the time you have you need a facade or some gateway to talk to the systems old systems and so there is always that interaction intersection and interaction with older systems of record or older APIs and older
0: legacy systems now now you know, now this is as another uh parenthetical footnote so to speak you know over the years when it comes to uh External services that are hard to change. People are always talking about the 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 strangler pattern, named after the, yeah. as I like to say, named after the tree, not the psychopath, even though you may wish for the second. And and you know, uh, is that real? Yeah. Do people actually use strangler patterns a lot successfully, Ooh, yeah. or is it just something that's fanciful? No,
1: it's all it's you use it all the time, and that's like this is perfect segue to my next third swim lane. I got this massive app right, which I need to modernize. How do I do this? Right. And this is where when the application is so massive and you can't really leverage your traditional techniques of lift and shift and like just containerize it. Like I can't do that. I need to break this thing down. And, and so and
0: so, then, so like, why is yeah. that like, why can't you do that?
1: So why you can't do that is earlier, like about, about a couple of years ago like containerization technology just hadn't moved to the point where you can fit in a massive JVM, yeah. uh, like around 4 gigs, 8 gigs, 16 gigs of memory and run it reliably inside Kubernetes, right? Now you can do that. Like it's, so the you could potentially run a 32 gig JVM or run three massive apps, but then you run into other issues where if you just lift and shift these massive applications, they have a complete lifecycle management that is dif- that fights what Kubernetes is trying to do to the application, right? Mm. So these ca- massive applications have been written on on WebSphere or WebLogic, and they are completely married to how these proprietary app servers manage them. They have they make very they are very incestuous in terms of how they interact with one another. They make deep assumptions about the platforms that they run on. They have certain optimizations and networking protocols that you can't find in the cloud. They, they reach across different modules because they are a single monolith. They have no, like there are there are no boundaries in between. They reach across different yeah, packages. Yeah. And so you you can try and maybe today, uh, now like in twenty twenty one you could potentially move these three massive apps and run them on kubernetes but they would not operate correctly and in fact you may you may be able to do it but you may be in a worse position than you started off it you right. might actually encounter more pain so do you really do you really want to go there right like you have to make that assessment like am i like like you might be making it truly worse rather than improving things so this is a judgment call that you need to make yeah and yeah
0: sure. yeah you had a uh Uh, this week sometime, you published a a great article in uh, InfoQ. And I think there there was a part of that, you know, you kind of explained even more of this where to do it in the optimistic way, way back when there was, uh, you know, JEE and app servers, and it was great. Everything worked really well. And as this is, this is another speaking of the phrase dirty secret. I don't know if there's clean secrets, but one of the, one of the (laughs) secrets of like, what would you call it? I think all programming probably is that, I don't know. It just rots after about 3 or 5 years. <laughs> and and as and and the reason it rots is not the software, and you were explaining this, but it's a um it's a would you call it a social issue? It's like a person issue where people just like sort of to say they get bored is to be dismissive, but there are other things they start paying attention to and they start making this series mm-hmm. of decisions where like they're gonna get around to this older thing, and they're gonna get around to it until finally they never get around to it, and people have forgotten how it works and it just yeah. like hasn't been updated and it and it becomes neglected and so what was once like a really nice app server or whatever is now just it hasn't been updated to run in modern ways for years and years. It's sort of like discovering uh it'd be like it'd be like if someone came uh i don't know time traveled from England in the 1530s and their, their language would be incompatible, even though technically they speak English. It would just be a totally yeah. different uh, They would speak like medieval or
1: old English. That's right. right?
0: That's right. <laughs> like, like those movies where cavemans are defrosted, <laughs> cave people. I
1: mean, some people say that all modernization is basically converting a 20-year-old stack to a, a five-year-old age stack. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's what it is. Like Brandon the other day, on I think your podcast or someone else said, the best thing to do is on January one, just shut down all the apps, and (laughs) then see who complains, and then just like start the ones up that people complain and give them ownership for modernizing them.
0: Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. That comes up in uh, compliance a lot too. Just like try not following some uh, some compliance thing and see if anything happens. (laughs) And usually, you find things don't
1: like this so these more man, most like massive monolithic apps they how why do they become big right like just we we'll get into how to take them to the cloud but just like these are literally heritage apps that generate a lot of money for the business there is active feature development that is going on on these applications and what has happened is certain decisions got made in the past that led to technical debt tech. each app all applications have technical debt just a matter of is is it good debt or bad debt right and so the the debt basically simply keeps accumulating on top of the other because you have to do new feature development and at some point right it's like it's more like a call option at, at, at some point but you uh, you have to like pay for the option right um hopefully if you have architected it correctly you never it never comes to the point where you have to like have to modernize it. But in, in some cases, like for instance, with this COVID pandemic, like you are, your hand gets forced and you absolutely have to modernize because application cannot sustain the pace of business features that need to get added. So it's, it's, a, it's a delicate balance of when do you modernize a critical system, critical app that generates tons of revenue. But usually you have, if you pay attention to how you're accumulating technical debt, you can postpone modernization um, to to a point where you are comfortable with it. If you don't do that, then at some point the option is going to expire, and you will have to modernize at an un, at a time which may not be so good for so mm. you. So you
0: have to
1: think about that.
0: So so talk about that more about how you make the decision to postpone doing anything. Like when when do you decide to, I don't know, metaphorically speaking. Refinance your technical debt rather than pay it all off.
1: <laughs> that's a that's a good question. Um, so the way, if I were a VP of line of business, if this application is is able to provide the the features, like if if I'm able to meet the needs of the business in a in a time, fashion, and horizon that is suitable for them. We are able to add features to the application. Business is happy, right? Uh, the, the Our own customers that use the app are happy. Um, at, at that point, like, okay, I have stabilized this application. I'm primarily in value capture mode, right? Mm. But in some cases, there is a new business driver, like a new digital experience or my retail load has tripled. There is some key critical business driver. Like I'm paying billions of dollars to IBM. I would like to stop paying them. Uh, for MIPS on the mainframe, then at that point, I have a massive business driver to spend the money and time on modernizing a monolithic application like this. And usually that is when it is successful, is when there is a key driver, COVID or digital experience or volumes going up or like I can't, like something. And then you use that vector to modernize the legacy application.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a kind of a a theory, you know, our... uh our fellow coworker, I guess that's redundant, but our, our coworker, uh, Rick Clark and I discuss on uh, a, a little ongoing podcast series we have where, um, basically in order to change, you need a crisis. <laughs> like, like in it, it, there, there's a, there's a minority of cases where like, uh, like you proact- proactively have a crisis, <laughs> but but in general, right. like unless there's something that comes up, it's it's like the situation you were talking about. When you do the business evaluation, it's fine. Like there's no reason. Like if your costs aren't out of control, if your customer satisfaction is good, if the revenue's coming in, it's sort of like, yeah, everything's all right. Whereas like you need some kind of pressure unless you're like, uh, the metaphorical equivalent of a health nut. That's just like proactively, you know, jogging every day and eating really healthy. Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's annoying, but I guess that kind of stasis is kind of nice (laughs) to be. in. Yeah. That's,
1: that, that is nice to be in. Like, like people say technical debt is bad. I mean, like whenever you write a single line of code, you are adding technical debt, right? And unless you are deleting code, then you are actually uh, reducing technical debt. But even when you write, like like think about it in debt terms, when you're writing a greenfield application, think about it as just transferring from a high percentage APR to a low, lower percentage APR. You're still going to have some technical debt when you write the new application or strangle the application, but it's at a much lower higher quality debt that can get repaid much faster. So like mm-hmm. it's a, the, the debt and the financial analogies apply really nice to this. I think Domain would like that. She did, I think, a talk based on like derivatives. Or yeah, something yeah. Like that. Um, but so there is the, maybe one of these conversations. We can kind of model technical debt as a call option and then like talk through that. Sure.
0: Uh, so so uh, I distracted you. And the point like, you were making is uh, you have found... Things uh, there, you had this other class of things that were like these problems that made it very difficult to uh, modernize these apps.
1: Correct. And so now we begin with okay, I want to know. So now you know that you want to modernize the application. So customers, then I want to know right uh, the process to modernize the app, like the process, the tools, and the techniques to. I'm going to just say modernize modernize the app. So this is. This is key now at this point, right? But when they want to modernize, they want to do. They should do it in a fashion that is iterative, right? And demonstrates actual ROI to the business. And uh, I'll get into the, like I will get into the technical factors of how to do this. So this is plan and prioritize, and this is I would say modernize. You we have now gone into the modernize section, right? So you want to modernize in a very iterative way way to demonstrate uh, ROI to the business. And on this side, I want to re-platform the application, right? I'm making minimal changes to the application so that I can land at the right uh, cloud native uh, at the right cloud native pit stop, uh, subway stop for my application. So there are two ways here. There's there's the re-platforming, which some people, I don't like to call it lift and shift. So this is re-platform and this is the, the modernized part and this is the new development part so like replatform develop or modernize you have you have now come into like these three mm. uh, these three stops so let's come back so now let's go to our next screen so we have the like the replatform quadrant right so i have a whole bunch of applications that i would like to uh, take to the cloud remember these are small medium and large apps and then I have one massive monolithic app, right? Or a distributed monolithic app. So this is one giant app. So let's let's draw this as a, as a giant app. And then I have new product development, right? And we can cover that separately, but there's a like set of practices that are critical here as well. So when you do the when you have a number of apps, we have tools that allow us to determine like cloud native effort. Right, uh, feasibility as, as I said, and then these there's a whole bunch of tools here called Snap, ARG. It basically tells you the series of remediations that you need to do to the application, and then you actually go to the like the containerization phase of the application. Um, over here, there you can use build packs. Uh, to containerize your application, you use Docker files to migrate to the, to make a container. Uh, so these, these are the two techniques. You also have like plugins, uh, Spring Boot has, so you have a Java application and then you, and then you, there is techniques to, for bootification. So I need to, delve. this is a longer form topic, but your application might not be ready to get containerized. You have to do certain things to it to get it ready so that you can make a container out of it. And those mean if it's a Spring Boot app, then you can just use the Java Build Pack or you could use the Spring Boot plugin. But what if it's a legacy application that runs on WebSphere? Then in that case, your options are either to use the, I'll I'll add Helm charts to this as well. Your options are either to remove the Java EE parts and take them to Spring, um, or you could use one of the WebSphere or WebLogic Helm charts. To package your application in Kubernetes, but managed by the WebSphere or WebLogic operator. So there are a number of paths to go to containers, and some of them in some of them are, I would say, there are different choices you make. If you want the least amount of effort, then you are inclined to just use what traditional app server vendors have provided for packaging, like. M charts or operators, but in that case you're still on WebSphere or WebLogic. You you could choose to remove those parts by going to equivalent Spring frameworks. We I call that process as bootification, and and then you could use Spring Boot plugins or Egypt, you can use JIP to go to containers. So even for the small, medium, large apps, like there are multiple parts of containerization to go to uh, to run on uh, Kubernetes or or Cloud Foundry. Now,
0: software, now in the uh, so so. Those various app servers—they've been Kubernetified. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I guess, I guess if you can like use a Helm chart to deploy them, then uh, they they can they can run on a, a cluster as well, right?
1: That's exactly right. So, they, so we we dig into this a little bit. So, I have my like Java app running on Tomcat. So, there's my Java apps running on like WebSphere or WebLogic, and then I have my ESBs and my bpms and stuff like that right mm. um, so even so there are helm charts that will allow you to deploy these applications um and increasingly all the isv vendors also provide uh application like uh, docker images to package the their core software um and then of course we have build packs to package these as uh, as containers um so I'm gonna use build packs here as the analogy. Um ultimately all this ends up as you now have a Docker image that you can then write a manifest for and deploy onto Kubernetes. So those are kind of your three parts.
0: Now now to your point earlier about like um it's often hard to like lift and shift things. Like I mean you were kinda of alluding to this earlier, but you know, in the app server world there's a whole lot of crazy stuff going on (laughs) as, as far as like, like networking and security and all that. And like, does that, how do they handle that? Like if they're running on top of Kubernetes, like, is there, I don't know, is that a lot easier to like move over onto that kind of environment than I'm thinking it is?
1: Yeah. So like you got it right. Like for instance, how is security managed? Um, I generally, we generally don't recommend this path. Um, our recommendation for the most part is to go down this route is you try to make it cloud-native strategically. You don't You don't have to change everything out, but mm. at least for the pieces that make sense, uh, replace them with equivalent spring framework constructs. We replace them with federated security and standards based security like OAuth and OIDC instead of leveraging the proprietary security mechanisms offered by the app server because those simply don't work in the cloud right you need to have equivalent replacements now in some cases the the vendors have provided hooks to make those work or workarounds to make them work in kubernetes but long term you are better satisfied by making your application a self contained unit and essentially yeah. decoupling it from the underlying infrastructure which is the app server right but- so you want to make yours a self contained app
0: how how do you decide between starting with the services that the app uses versus starting with the app right like like you're saying that you know you have to uh uh you know let, let let's say you're depending on some security service inside the app server that just like is difficult to work in kubernetes right and so maybe Instead, like maybe one way would be to let's replace the security service and then just make the change in the app to use this new security service instead of the other way around. Or I don't know, do you always start with the app or do you sometimes start with the underlying things or how do you figure that out?
1: Most of the times you just start with the app. First All you right. make a decision, right? Um, and then when you just push it first in your de- in development, when you push the app, that just just breaks. Mm. Security no longer works, right? <laughs> right. Um, it's a matter of fact. Like first, one of the first things people do when they replatform, usually eighty percent of the time, this is how it works. They turn off. You turn off security because you know it's not gonna work. You get it functionally running, right? Like an app comes up, an unauthenticated user can access that resource. Then you kind of you create a facade. Ideally, if you have implemented the application correctly, you have layered in security in an OAuth. In a standard-specific way, so that you can just plug in the SSO provider of the cloud. Like you can plug in like a SSO authentication authorization provider, like an Okta or, um, or or some of these other providers. But usually that is not the case. So then you refactor the app to use OAuth or OIDC that so that you can plug in Okta or you can plug in Ping as a security provider. So there is work that needs to be done to provide. Security as a third part, as a service, and usually then the idea is all the applications then leverage that pattern to use the security service in the or that library common library in the cloud. That's how generally the transition occurs. So, WebSphere Web. So these are like our three roads. We use like build packs. Uh, we use bootification, uh, where we take basically replace Java EE or J2EE constructs with equivalent uh, Spring ones, right? And for and for these ESBs and VPMs, either you are rewriting them or you're using the Docker images provided by the vendor to repackage them, or like if you have something like Tipco, either you have to refactor them again uh, to to more like independent self-deployed units, or you leverage what is provided by the vendor, like Tipco use like Tipco build packs or Tipco operators to put them in the cloud. So. It's, those are kind of your options either you take the effort make it cloud native or you kind of go with what the vendor has and then get a reduced set of roi with that okay so this is the this is the re-platform flow the, the monolithic flow is kind of fun because there isn't really uh there's only one way through that through that jungle um and i'll explain to you so strangler is plays a role in it facades play a role in it So you have this massive application where different different modules and business domains are all kind of uh, like conjoint twins playing with one another. Everyone calls another one. There is no encapsulation of code. There is no modularity, right? Uh, It's basically a big ball of mud, right? So step one is understanding what are my domains, right? Like what are, like the question you need to start asking is what are my domains, right? One, what is the like the top pain point? Like what what is the top constraint that I am solving for, right? Um, and then like I said, what are my key like business drivers here? Um, and this is important because you have to do this iteratively, you have to solve it in a step-by-step fashion for each thin slice. Like the way to the way to think about it is this: this is the application. It is satisfying in number of uh, of use cases like that go through it. Each of this provides a business value, right? So you have to when you modernize, make sure that uh, I'll get into the actual techniques of doing it maybe next time. But you have to do this iteratively for one, two, and three. Finish one completely, then two completely, and then three completely. You can't just modernize a massive monolith across all the use cases for all the end-to-end flows in one go. You will definitely fail if you do that. It is critical to do this in prioritized thin slices across like domains where you strangle domains like one at a time. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the, the key. What, so maybe we'll get into the how later. But how can you fail with this? Let's talk about like how do you fail with monolith modernization. You can fail if you do everything in one go. Right? Right. So if you do everything in one go, you're guaranteed to fail. Another way to fail is you look for silver bullets. Right? When people show up and say, okay, this is your critical app. Let me just take all of it to Kubernetes. I have some i have some secret sauce that will that will generate code like mainstream modernization facefully to this where there are vendors that will generate code for you but i'm not they don't tell you fully the delta that you need to do to move to the cloud if there is someone who promises that you can move all of it in one go like move it to kubernetes or something like that be very wary of that so like i i would be very wary of Right. that That's um, like
0: uh, uh, on a maybe. Yeah. Yesterday, I'm sure your son has asked questions like this. Well, I'm not sure, but maybe he has. But my son said he heard that someone figured out how to bring uh, people back to life and it cost something like fifty thousand dollars. And he was like, because that's a lot of money. Right. And uh, I, I was saying, I, I, you know, I try never to uh, be like, that's that's of course not. You must be wrong. So I was like, oh, I haven't heard that. That's interesting. And then we were, <laughs> we were walking and kind of like with this point, I, I'm imagining like I was I was thinking like, well, what if they like died of cancer when they come back to life? Does it also cure the cancer? Because then they would just die again. <laughs> and like you know, I I think I think silver bu- bullets and software a lot like that, where you know just the way we were talking about, like you could probably repackage everything to run on Kubernetes. And then you're going to yeah. find out that these like five other services that you're relying on don't work or these other things don't work. So it's like, you know, you might have a silver bullet that can like, you know, chop a finger off, but you're not going to really like take care of the whole thing. That's kind of a drastic way of putting it. But, you know, you, you <laughs> might you, you might be able to solve one pro- one bit of the whole uh, system, but uh, rarely the whole thing.
1: Yeah. And to what end, right? Like you, you have to always work your way back from the outcome that you want. Like, why are you moving this? Why are you modernizing it? Why are you breaking it down? Like, what what do you want to achieve? Do you want to achieve a faster uh, path to production for features? Do you want a new enhanced digital experience? Are you migrating this to the cloud for, uh, for optimization and for just like really consolidating infrastructure? You have to make your way back from the outcome that you want, like mm. have an outcome oriented roadmap, especially when you when it comes to massive projects right you, you have to work your way back, create an outcome oriented roadmap to 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 then understand why are we doing this, and we are breaking this down and modernizing that's another driver to understand, okay, should I be doing lift and shift or should I be modernizing it right like figure out what you want first, and then work your way back
0: yeah, that makes sense.
1: Another couple of things is like you can't half-ass this. Uh, like the thing is, what I have seen a lot in the wild in, in with customers is the projects get started, and then because it like almost always what happens is it will get worse before it will get better. <laughs> I call that W B B. Like because then you have the application is under development. You have an, another alternate stream that is kind of trying to strangle it at the at this at the same time. It almost always get gets worse before it starts getting better. If you kind of are not able to cross that chasm, and then you just abandon it halfway, then you have a series of half-started app modernizations where, like, you didn't where you didn't really achieve anything and just spent a whole ton of money. So, like, the, those are that's what I will close out. With. Don't half-ass it, and it will get worse before it becomes better. There is no silver bullet. There is no outsource provider that can just magically do this for you at an x amount of money it's a very collaborative effort where you have to work with your partner in a very close lockstep to make it happen yeah
0: Um, you know those hit on two two of the main things i i generally talk with people about what i've seen over over the years is like one uh you need to actually do the work right like like you have to you know, whether you're working with someone or you're going through this tediousness of doing it, there's actually work to do. Like you see this all the time in like agile, people don't actually follow all the agile practices. And and you're just like, well, well, I don't know what to tell you. Right. Like, and then, and then the other thing I think is, is, you know, a lot of those not another, another general point is like, it's, it's going to take a while, right? Like, like it took you a long time to write these applications. We can't just like do it, overnight or even in six months, right? It's going to take a, a while to go through your entire portfolio. So I see you starting with success. Maybe that's a great cliff, cliff, uh cliff holder, cliff Cause of yeah. course you want to know that, but there was, we got, we we're lucky to get one question. Maybe we can close out with the question sure. and that is, yeah. so, you know, you're mentioning uh like, like security and we we're talking about all these services and stuff. Now do, do like, do people using service meshes, you know, whether it's like ISTE or other things, does that, kind of help alleviate some of those things. Like, cause you know, a lot of, a lot of the issues, whether it's with security things or databases or services, get down to like networking yeah. <laughs> and, and in distributed applications, networking is just like on the internet, right? Like you have to, uh, you sort of have to know what you're looking for. Then you got to go ask a registry where that thing is. Then you have to authenticate with that thing to make sure you have permission to talk to that thing. And then you have to hope the thing understands what you're saying to it. And then you also have to uh get the stuff that it sends back to you. And then you have to understand what it's sending you. Never minding that principle about like be strict in what you send and loosen what you hear or whatever. But like how 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 does the service mesh help out with uh, those kind of issues?
1: Yeah, so the service mesh basically provides a a consistent backplane, right, for for service discovery um, so that this monolithic application can discover all these other microservices kind of transparently, right? Without like much churn, like in the way that he expects to find things. And though these more microservices can find other uh, other things. The service, service mesh basically provides a way to encapsulate, right? Service discovery and do it in a way that is kind of That is done in the way the monolith expects it and how the individual microservices can discover it. Mm. So it makes just service discovery easy. It provides, uh, there's examples like Istio or Console. It provides a consistent way of finding services in both monolithic apps and in microservices. And so if you employ this like throughout your organization, then any new application that that comes across automatically can discover these other applications as well as monoliths. service meshes can can straddle both your like your on prem environments and your uh, and your cloud environments so they provide the, that uniform layer of uh, of encapsulation so access they can also provide security um security can be baked into a service mesh they provide throttling of uh, of of traffic um, so, they, they provide observability of interaction across the across various services. Um, so, there are all these second layer advantages that security meshes can provide that allow, that give you basically deeper insight into your application, into your application workload, right? You could, in fact, just instrument everything with a service mesh and then use those insights to decompose your application as well. Mm, um, right. So basically allows you to bake in a set of non-functional uh, kind of requirements and reduce the amount of heavy lift that needs to be done by the monolith or by the on-premise applications or by the cloud application. It provides a way for you to make it consistent. Now, the thing is like this can become a service mesh can become kind of a, uh, You have to be careful with service meshes because you can get married to them. They could become their own kind of proprietary app service. There is no standards governing service meshes. The more you drink the service mesh Kool-Aid, the more you get married to a particular service. So understand the trade-offs that you are making. I like to use them for like stuff where you can take advantage of it, but you cannot be just completely dependent on it. Um, So that's kind of, Right. They're very helpful, right. cool, but beware of, uh, but buyer beware. See, understand what you are getting into when you use something like Istio or Consul. Right. Or, Otherwise,
0: uh, you just replace your ESB with an ESM, just an enterprise service mesh.
1: <laughs> with an enterprise service mesh, and yeah. everybody has them. There's Tanzu as a service mesh. There's Istio. Service meshes have service meshes like Blue, right? Like it's service meshes all the way down.
0: Yeah, and I think I think the point you raised, I mean, that's a. That's a good way of risk managing accidentally getting, you know, to use my joke, an ESM is to think, how am I using this service mesh for functionality versus like platformy stuff? <laughs> or I don't I don't know what the second one is so much, but, you know, like eventually you want to get to that. But as you're sort of sorting out how to use it, kind of like having a critical operational, uh, what would you call it? not priority, a uh, dependency on it. Like it's probably good to like learn how it fits in and works out before you lock yourself into that uh, very early on with your applications or not. I don't know.
1: Yeah. make an, Think through the trade-offs and make an explicit decision early with respect to what trade-off you're making. If you're going to use it for observability, then you don't have to put some of that observability in your application. That's okay. You're delegating it to the mesh, but you made a trade-off there, right? So... Be very cognizant about the trade-offs that you're making when you get when you marry yourself to a service match. They are very helpful and they make your life easy because the peanut butter spread all, uh, all these convenient non functional services on your apps. So uh it would sense. like peanut butter, but you can die off it too to if you too
0: much of it. So we'll 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 schedule you to be on and we, we can follow, you know, the the I think one of Hemingway's best tips of writing is you always stop right in the middle of whatever you're doing that day. So the next day you know exactly where to pick up. Now you've already written down the header for success. So, right. so we've got, we're we'll stopped right in the middle and we'll, we'll get you back on. I don't know who we is, me. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll continue down that. And I know, you know, there's a lot, you wrote down some of these things, but there's a lot more, uh, as you go down those, uh, those fallen over swim lanes, the, uh, horizontal swim lanes, there's more yeah. types of analysis and things that you go through yeah. and uh, snaps and borises and things like that. Yeah. Or is that a bore eye? I always forget. But we got all <laughs> sorts of fun stuff to go through. And in the meantime, uh, I don't know. I'll I'll put in the show notes. Uh, I'm going to put this as as a uh, podcast episode. I might have to edit it since it's highly visual. I'll have to listen to it and see how it works. But I'll have to put yeah. a link to your uh, your InfoQ article which kind of goes over a lot of the stuff as well. But what's uh, what's your handle over there in Twitter? Where, where can people check you out there?
1: It's uh, R for Robert, K for Kansas, E for Elvis, L for Larry, and A for Apple. R-T-E-L-E. R-
0: Perfect. All right. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time to go over this. It was fun. And uh, we'll have to do it again.
1: Thank you, it. This was good.
0: All right, everyone. Bye-bye.